Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be continuing. This is, uh, we're doing like a little miniature sermon series through the book of Ruth, which we're actually going to wrap up next week. Um, but so far, if you have not been with us, just let me briefly recap where we've been up to this point. We've been following the story of a woman named Naomi, who in chapter one changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter. She changes her name to Mara because life has, well, she says that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. Ten years prior, she had gone to Moab with her family, her husband Elimelech, her sons Malon and Chilion, and they had left in the midst of a famine in Judah. They're, they had moved from the small farming community of Bethlehem. The crops had failed. They'd moved away. And while they were in Moab, they settled down, but horrible things began to happen, disaster after disaster. First, Elimelech died, and then her two sons died. And then Naomi was left with two daughters-in-law and no prospects whatsoever. It is a very difficult thing. Uh, today, we live in a, a, in a society where there are safety nets, and in that day and age, there was none. Uh, there, were very, there was very little that a woman in Naomi's position could do to provide for herself. And she thought the safest bet was to return home to her family. In that first sermon, I quoted Robert Frost. He defined home as the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And that's, uh, that's how Naomi thinks of Bethlehem. I have to go there, and they have to take me in. I'm their family. They have to provide for me, or it'll be a great shame for them. But even so, this is, a, this is a difficult, embarrassing thing. And as she's going home, she turns to her daughters-in-law. They're on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. Her daughters-in-law are named Orpah and Ruth, the namesake of the book of Ruth. And she says to them, listen, uh, God has cursed me. I am entering into a life of great hardship, poverty, and you need not follow me into that. I recommend you turn back and go back home. She convinces Orpah that it's the right call, and Orpah does return, she says, to her family and to her gods. But Ruth, and we studied this last week, gives this impassioned speech. She makes it very plain, I am not going back home, I am going with you. And the amazing thing about Ruth's decision is that she decides to enter into what Naomi was fleeing. She's a vulnerable widow entering into a country that's not her own, where she does not have her family relationships around her. She chooses for herself what Naomi is fleeing. And last week we pondered, why would she do such a thing? Why would she choose that? And the only thing that we can conclude was God. God, for some reason, had laid a sense of calling on Ruth to go do this. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But then again, as we said last week, neither did, did the decision of Jim Elliot or his wife Elizabeth or Paul to go be a missionary to the Gentiles. Don't look for reason necessarily in what God's calling is on a person's life. And so that's where we leave off. So they have settled into Bethlehem. And if you've ever moved to a new place for Ruth, when you, as a child, did you ever move to a new town and have to go to a new school? I did that. Maybe you haven't. Aristotle County people never move, right? You guys just, no. But if, you've, if you can put yourself in that shoes, it's the first day of school in Bethlehem. 
That's essentially where we pick up in Ruth 2. In verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, if you don't have that word happened underlined in your Bible, if you're in the habit of marking up your Bibles, underline the word happened. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz answered to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest." Uh, Just first, a couple words of commentary. Uh, One, just this is playing out in the beginning words of the first chapter of Ruth. It says that this is happening in the period of the judges, which we have covered in previous weeks is kind of like the Wild West period in Israel's history. There's no king. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, which means that everyone is a law unto themselves. Might makes right. It is kind of a scary time in Israel's history. And this is the period in which Ruth decides to move to this country with her mother-in-law, Naomi. We're also told at the tail end of chapter 1 that they arrive in Bethlehem right at the time of barley harvest. It says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So this is usually mid-April. And it's a busy and important two months for the farming community of Bethlehem. Another thing is I want you to be aware of the Old Testament practice of gleaning. Uh, Gleaning, of course, is you go out in the fields and you're not working for the farmer. You're just taking what's not being harvested. And in fact, there's a law given among the Israelites. Here we read this in Leviticus 23, 22. This is many, 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 many years before Ruth. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, this is God speaking through Moses, You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So this is sort of like an Old Testament way of providing for the poorest people in the community, where they could, through their own industry and work, provide for themselves. They could go out after the, in fact, they were not allowed to clear all of the harvest right up to the boundary of the field. They had to leave a bit for the poorer folks to come along and gather for themselves. So this is one of the ways that God, in his wisdom, among his people in the Old Testament, uh, provided for the poorest people in the community. And so the fact that Ruth is going out to glean is testimony to the fact that she is living in abject poverty. Uh, This is just what the poorest people did, and that's true for Ruth. Now, we see a lot of Ruth's character in the opening verses of chapter 2. Words like hardworking, industrious, honest, and helpful come to mind. And at the root of all of her remarkable character, I want you to see this. Ruth has a deep humility. That word never occurs here, but 
humility is described, I believe. Despite her own poverty and reversal of fortunes in life, she is focused not on herself. Uh, Ruth is not looking for help. Amazingly, she is looking to be a help to Naomi. Now, I don't mean by saying that to say that it's wrong to look for help. Not at all. Not at all. I just point out that the Ruth's mindset in this moment is that when it comes to her and Naomi, she is animated and governed by a desire to be a help to Naomi. She sees that she can do something, and so she does do it. And the thing that's so remarkable about this to me is that uh, very often when difficulties visit somebody, I mean, it's an, it's an old, it's almost a trite truth to bring up, but the same water that softened, the same boiling water that softens the potato hardens the egg. You've heard that analogy before. And here we see in Ruth some truth to this. Uh, life's difficulties have had the effect of hardening Naomi. <laughs> she is so hard, she's renamed herself bitter. And those same difficulties that have also landed on Ruth have had this amazing effect of bringing about spiritual fruit, humility, a desire to help. It's, it's amazing to see this, but it is true. I think difficulties in life get turned into the soil of our hearts like fertilizer, and everything loves growing out of that. The intended fruit that God would plant there and the weeds of bitterness, they all grow from the fertilizer of trials and tribulations. The fact is, when trials come into our life, it's gonna change us. Uh, you don't come out the other side of them the same person. But I think one of the things that we should pay close attention to spiritually as we look at Naomi and Ruth together is in the midst of this trial that you're going through, what is growing in you? What is growing in that well-fertilized heart of yours, fertilized with the stinky manure of that trial and tribulation? Is, are weeds of bitterness growing? Or is the intended crop, the fruit of righteousness, is this what's growing in me? Uh, take some time to take inventory there. Ask God to search you. Later in the chapter, we'll see that when Boaz gives Ruth some lunch, she'll hold some of it back so that she can take it home to give to Ruth. Ruth is really just not focused on herself. She's focused on Naomi. And possessing an other's focus is the very essence of humility. And in chapter 2, we see the humility of Ruth on display. Now, in the midweek email this week, I wrote that pride and humility both have the same motto. Uh, look out for number one. Pride and humility both have this as their motto. Look out for number one. The difference is that pride and humility have different ideas about who is number one. Pride focuses primarily on self. And I think if Ruth was consumed with pride, she would be saying, Ruth, you're number one. You've got to take care of yourself. Nobody else is going to do it. And I think that was the attitude at the root of Orpah's decision to turn back and go back to Moab and to leave Naomi. Humility, however, focuses primarily on others. And I think Ruth is thinking to herself, Naomi has got to be number one right now. She needs my help. I've got to serve her. I've got to go out and do what needs to be done or that lady's going to starve. I've got to go out and help her. And, and really, Jesus modeled this for us, right? In Philippians 2, 3 through 11, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
not believe that they're better, but consider them better. (laughs) They may not be better, but the command is to consider them better. And then our example of this is Jesus. It goes on. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you ought to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And took on the very likeness of man, became a very nature of servant. And he wore that body all the way to the cross where he died in our place. Ruth is like a little picture of that truth. We see here the humility of Jesus. I mean, when it says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that attitude to put a name on it, is humility. And Ruth here is demonstrating a remarkable humility in the way that she is serving her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I think Christians today could learn a lot from Ruth. Uh, There is, after all, a harvest going on right now here in Arista County. There will be one in the fall as well, of course. Uh, But there is one that is ongoing all the time. It's a harvest that even happens in January, in the middle of winter. In Matthew 9, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so I I digress here a little bit from the story. This is not the main point of Ruth chapter 2, but permit me just this little aside. Uh, Ruth's example, I think, one of the ways we could possibly apply this is that there is work for the humblest to do in the harvest fields of our God. Or perhaps it would be better to say there is work if you are humble enough to do it. Uh, Believe it or not, there are people in the church who see some tasks as being not worth their time, as being beneath them. But Jesus says that he that exalts himself will be brought low, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. I think very few in the church will be called to be a Billy Graham. We may not have been called or gifted to play that kind of a prominent, visible role in the church, but we can all do something. No, really, we have to put it more strongly than that. We, not that we can all do something, we must I'll do something. Each and every one of us was crafted by our creator God to worship him through service. Pride says my gifts are insignificant. What can I bring to this? I have nothing of worth to bring to the effort, but humility sees the need and simply says, what can I do? I don't know what you can do with me, God, but here I am. Take me, use me. I want to help. And we can all glean words of comfort to carry to the sick and the dying in hospitals. We can all glean in the fields of Scripture lessons for the little ones, promises for the brokenhearted, hope for the poor, forgiveness and repentance for the sinner. And we can be spurred on ourselves to acts of service for those in need of a blessing and a help. I thank God that there really is a place in this great harvest for humble gleaners. 
Your circumstances may be humble. You may not think yourself particularly well-gifted for kingdom work. But remember that Ruth set out with nothing more than a burden to meet a need and a willingness to sacrifice and work hard. And God provided everything else that was needed. We move on now in verse 8. It says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I didn't have the status of one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Uh, <laughs> here begins the beginning, I think, of one of the greatest romance stories in the Bible. This is a real meet-cute, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. I, Boaz um, and Ruth are very dissimilar in some ways. I mean, he's a man, she's a woman. She's from Moab, he's from Judah. He's fairly well off, it would seem. She's desperately poor. Uh, there, there is a lot that separates these two, but already we are beginning to see that they are well-suited because they are a good match because they agree on what's most important. I think they have a similar character. Despite his prominent place, Boaz possesses really the same humility that Ruth does. Take, take note here of the kindness of Boaz to Ruth and Naomi. First, in his words. I think it must have been like food and drink to Ruth to have a respected man and a person of standing like Boaz say such kind words to her. Especially if we contrast Boaz's words with those of Naomi in the last chapter. Do you remember when the people of Bethlehem, she comes home, the people don't even recognize her. They're like, are you? No, you can't be Naomi. She said at that time, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And standing right there is Ruth. Brought back empty. Naomi is so lost in her bitterness that she is blind to the blessing of Ruth right next to her. She's come back with less. It's been a rough road. Oh, but thank God for Ruth. No, that's not really where she's at. She doesn't even see Ruth. 
In fact, she might have been thinking that Ruth was an obstacle to her attempts to seek a place to stay and live, that she'd have to now arrange and negotiate for Ruth as well. She may have been looking upon Ruth as kind of a boat anchor. I don't know that, but maybe. That's a bit of speculation. But Boaz affirms her. He calls her my daughter. How sweet to the ears of a friendless stranger. In verse 11, he says, I know all that you have done for Naomi. I've heard all about it. He seems to be saying, I'm impressed with you. Before I ever met you, I had heard about your reputation has preceded you, Ruth. I'm so glad you're here in my field. I know some things about you. I admire you. I respect you. He acknowledges what a difficult and costly decision that must have been for Ruth. He says that he knows how she left her father and mother and her native land to come be a stranger among the Israelites. He's very affirming of this woman. He expresses concern for Ruth's welfare. Again, I say this is an absolute lawless time. It is a might-makes-right kind of a day. And he says that you got to stay in my field. <laughs> I can't protect you if you go glean elsewhere. you got to stay right here, which again is kind of mute testimony to the fact that it's a rough neighborhood. No, Boaz knows that by gleaning, she is exposing herself to the possibility of being assaulted, taken advantage of. He tells her, stick to my field, stay close to my servants who are under my authority so that she can work unmolested under the umbrella of his protection. He encourages Ruth to put confidence in the constancy and faithfulness of God and not in men or circumstances. Boaz does not point to himself as the solution to all of, his tr- all of her troubles. He instead points to God. He said, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Very kind words from Boaz. But we also know as we read that Boaz is not all talk. He also demonstrates his loving concern for Ruth in action. Words are cheap if they stand alone, but he's not all talk. Boaz, here, he he does something. He says, after affirming Ruth's value and character, expressing empathy for her circumstances, admiration for her bravery and devotion, concern for her welfare, all that stuff, he, he then acts. He instructs the young men not to touch her. Uh, The boss basically goes out and said, heads are going to roll if any of you bother Ruth. (laughs) You're going to regret it. He tells her that even though she is a gleaner and not one of his hired workers, she is to help herself to anything in the employee lounge, the water that had been brought out to the field for the workers. At mealtimes, he invites her to eat with him personally, and apparently she brought no lunch of her own. He shares his food with her and invites her to dip her bread in his wine. He gave her so much that she had enough to take home for Naomi in a doggy bag. He instructed his workers to let Ruth gather grain wherever she wanted, even among the sheaves of harvested barley, and don't do anything to stop her. Then he decides to be even more generous than that. He says to his workers to pull out some grain from the sheaves and drop it behind them for Ruth to find as she comes along gleaning. 
Ruth must have been like, boy, these are some sloppy workers, Boaz has. (laughs) Just big big piles of grain, like, oh my goodness. You should fire these people. He had expressed his hopeful prayer to Ruth that God would take care of her and Naomi. And now it seems that God has laid it on his heart to be the means by which God will answer that very prayer. Man is God's method. Always, even in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall, God made Adam and Eve to tend his garden. Man was his method even there. And here, Boaz doesn't just pray, God, take care of Ruth. He then is instantly rushes in upon his consciousness, his heart, a desire to act in a way that brings that prayer, that makes the prayer answered. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but right now, I, you are the answer to somebody's prayer. I don't know what it is. Maybe they are praying for a friend. Maybe they are praying for a job. Maybe they are praying for, I don't even know what. Maybe they don't even have the words to express the prayer they ought to be praying. But whatever God is gonna do, he's gonna do it through his church. The church is God's a, plan A, there is no plan B, we're it. Right now, we are the means, the creaturely means by which God intends to do what he's going to do. Boaz prays a prayer, but he's also mindful of the fact that he is God's agent. And he begins to act in a way that agrees with the prayer that he prayed. And maybe as I've been talking, the Spirit has brought to your mind someone who's in need of some kindness. Someone who, like Ruth, needs to be affirmed, encouraged, taken care of, and pointed to God. Maybe someone who you know feels like a stranger and who needs a friend more than just kind words. And maybe you could be that person. I don't know. But again, I see in Ruth an example of what I want to be. I'm inspired by Ruth, and I'm challenged by Ruth, and I'm challenged by Boaz. I want to be like these two, for sure, and I'm, as I read, I just am like, oh, God, make me like that. Use me like you use Boaz or Ruth. We come now to verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, an ephah is a, is a, would have weighed approximately 30 to 40 pounds. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she, what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Who has such sloppy harvesters? <laughs> where have you worked? She says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman, woman of Boaz, gleaning in until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It also mentions the wheat harvest. That begins around June. So she worked in the fields of Boaz roughly April, May, and then into late summer, a period of probably about three, four months. This is probably how long she was working there in the fields. Now, verse 20 is the key verse in this section for me. Uh, Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Ruth and Boaz served as ministering instruments in the hands of God to the weary spirit of Naomi. We left her in chapter 1 feeling cursed. She talked about being empty, bitter, and she was certain that God's hand had gone out against her. But their kindness and faithfulness to Naomi is received by her correctly as a blessing from God. Naomi is correct in thanking God first rather than Ruth or Boaz. Isn't that interesting? All this stuff happens and she thanks God. She believed that all things come from him, that he governs the affairs of human beings. Whatever else we criticize Naomi over, please mark this. She understands rightly who God is in his place. If you go back with me in verse 3, where it says that Ruth happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz, though it had seemed of little consequence to Ruth at the time when she had set out that morning, it was God who directed her steps to the field belonging to Boaz. This seemingly coincidental encounter would result in a marriage, a home, and a promising future for her and Naomi. It would result in motherhood, happiness, a deepening union with God and his people, and a place among the ancestors of King David, and even as we are told in Matthew 1, Jesus Christ himself. It all began when she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. We should not view any of our relationships this week or any of our activities as ho-hum, spiritually insignificant. God is always at work. He is a purposeful God. And we should always have our antennas up for God's activity, even in seemingly insignificant times. Remember, Saul was out looking for a lost donkey when he suddenly and unexpectedly was confronted by the prophet Samuel and anointed as Israel's first king. He was out looking for a lost animal when he became king. David was delivering some food to his brothers when he ended up having an encounter with Goliath. Moses was tending his father's-in-law's sheep when God spoke to him out of a burning bush. Peter was at work fishing in the Sea of Galilee when a man named Jesus walked up to him and said, Come, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers, a fisher of men. And Ruth, she happened to come to a field belonging to Boaz. What are you going to do this week? Where are you going to go? What conversations will you enter into? And how will those things echo a million years from now in eternity because you happened to stop at that gas station? You happened to go to Martin's instead of Walmart. You happened, you happened, you happened, and God showed up and did something unexpected 
Brothers and sisters, do you know who you are? You are the instruments of God in this weary place. You travel with the aroma of Christ about you. You have his words in your heart and mind. Where will you happen to go this week? God does not just show up at church. He might show up anywhere and at any time and through unexpected people and circumstances, maybe even you. What might God have in store for us this week if we begin that week by asking him to do such things? I'll leave you with this thought and kind of prime things for my message next week when we're going to conclude our walk through the story of Ruth. In verse 20, it seems to me that Naomi sort of wakes up to the fact that God has been working behind the scenes for her own good and for his own good purposes. She speaks for the first time about God's kindness to her. Up till now, she's only spoken about how God has dealt bitterly with her. But now she speaks of God's kindness to her. And then you can almost see the wheels beginning to turn in her head as she adds, the man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. Naomi's spiritual antenna is up. It had been looking kind of wilted and droopy, but now it's... (laughs) She's ready. She sees God's fingerprints all over the day's events. The hair stands up on the back of her neck. All of a sudden, she sees a path forward. There's a glimmer of hope. She can see what God is doing, maybe. It was God who allowed Ruth, who directed Ruth's step to to that field. It was God who allowed Ruth to find favor in Boaz's sight. It was God who stirred up Boaz's heart to be kind to them. It was God who provided for their needs, giving them an ephah of barley. And now, in light of all this kindness that God has shown them, Naomi shifts her focus from the sadness of the past 10 years to the possibilities of the future. And there is more than just a spark of hope in these words. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I hope you can come back next week when we're going to conclude the story, and you'll find some, I think, some wonderful encouragement for our own lives as we examine what it means to be redeemed. Redeemed. What a wonderful, powerful word among Christians. That'll be the subject next week when we gather back together. I hope you can join us. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have enjoyed this story as we have walked along with Naomi and Ruth uh, from a period in their lives that looked about as dark as it could possibly be to now where we begin to see the hopeful ways that you are working all things for the good of these who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. God, you were never inactive or distant or silent. You were never unconcerned. When they were down to nothing, God, you were up to something. Things were beginning to move in a way that would be ultimately for their good, for your glory. And God, it all, we saw that it all started to turn around when Ruth happened to come to the field of Boaz. God, as we look back over our own lives, we see the way that you have shepherded us along despite ourselves. 
and we say thank you, Lord. We say thank you. Now next week as we gather back together and we talk about being redeemed, that is the point of the story of Ruth. Father, there is so much there for us to enjoy and apply to our own lives, our own story with you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us for that conversation next week, but that this week, God, as we venture out from this place, God, I pray that you would cause us to happen into many places, many lives, many conversations. God, we pray that you would do your work through us, your church, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.